Evening everyone, and you're very welcome to our Good Friday uh, communion service this evening. Um, this evening I want to try and exalt Jesus Christ and look at his character, look at his personality, and um, particularly with regards to holiness, his holiness. Holy means in Hebrew to be set apart. And I want to show tonight by three little talks a little of how Jesus is set apart uh, from any other. There's no one even coming close to who he is, and yet the amazing thing is that he walks with us. And we're thinking of Curtis Ross tonight. Curtis was to be accepted into communion, uh, communicant membership this evening, but uh, unfortunately he has COVID, so we'll have to wait until June. But thinking of him, he's bound to be disappointed. Um, let me just pray and open our service with a word of prayer. Father, as we gather today, we remember the supreme sacrifice of our beautiful King, the Lord Jesus Christ, led like a lamb to the slaughter, clothed in humility and grace. He willingly offered himself to death so that we might live forever. We are truly thankful for the extent of his love, stretched out on a cruel wooden cross, we dwell on the pain he bore for us and are truly grateful for the forgiveness that he offers. And as we worship and praise now, help us to live in the wonder of this goodness and marvel at his endless grace. Amen. Something I'm going to be looking at tonight is can we trust Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ trustworthy? Um, so I want us just to settle our hearts. We've possibly had a busy week, been rushing about, getting the tea, coming out here tonight. So we're going to just sit and reflect upon the Lord's My Shepherd, uh, Stuart Townend uh, version of that. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me lie in pastures green. He leads me by the still, still waters. His goodness restores my soul. And I will trust in you, and I will trust in you, for your endless mercy follows me, your goodness will lead me. 
I've asked Amy to come and she's to choose a, a, a hymn this evening or a song to start our service with. So she's going to come and tell us in a few words just what, why this song is so special to her. Uh, she's chosen This is Amazing Grace. Just because um, how joyful the song is. Um, in my own sort of personal faith, I've been exploring what it means to be living in God's joy um, and having God's joy in your life. Um, and so I just really love um, how this song speaks of not only God's grace, but God's amazing grace. Um, and I just pray that uh, all of us here would be able to experience God's joy um, at this Easter time. So yeah, that's why I thought it was fitting for this service. Thanks. Feel free to do actions if you want to do them. <laughs> okay, so we're we're gonna we're gonna sing this is amazing grace. Let's stand and sing.
like to read Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. It's Jesus in the garden. Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Can you trust Jesus? Is he trustworthy? I want to look for just a moment at Jesus in contrast to Peter. Now, many of you will remember Eddie the Eagle, um, a British ski jumper in the 1988 Olympics. Uh, he finished last in both the 70 meters and the, 60, or the 90 meter events, but he had the heart of a lion. He had never done ski jumping before. He used to practice by sliding down his own staircase in his house. He was nine kilograms heavier than any other competitor, and he had to wear six pairs of socks so his boots would fit. And because of his poor eyesight, the press called him Mr. Magoo. And Peter reminds me a bit of Eddie the Eagle. Uh, he's totally untrained in public speaking. You know, I mend nets, I catch fish, see the burn marks on my hands. I'm a fisherman. I don't do public speaking. But when Jesus asks him to follow him, he can't let such an opportunity pass him by. I'm sure you've noticed Peter's a bit of a, like a, a seesaw. He's up and down, very impulsive. Uh, like the time when Jesus was walking on the water, Peter's attitude is, I want to go at that. Or when Peter and James and John, they see Jesus transfigured on the mountain and Moses and Elijah are there. Peter's rushing about trying to find wood to make seats for them all to sit on. And God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, would you stop running around like a headless chicken and listen to what my son has to say? And when it comes to his spiritual life, sometimes he's like the tortoise and sometimes he's like the hare. Sometimes he's quick and very spiritually aware when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yet sometimes he's very like a tortoise, slow in understanding. Like the time when the Pharisees were complaining about the disciples not washing their hands. And Jesus tells, the, tells them that, that it, what, what somebody eats is not what defiles a man, it's what comes out of his heart. And Peter later on says, listen, Jesus, can you use some plain language? I just don't get that. I don't understand it. 
So sometimes Peter's fast, sometimes he's slow, sometimes he's up, sometimes he's down. And in contrast to Peter, though, we see the consistency of Jesus Christ. His nature, he's a rock. As David writes in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock. Or as the musician writes in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. Steadfast, steady, trustworthy, not up and down or on and off. He's consistent. Christ is consistent. And in this passage, Jesus and the disciples have just left the upper room and they're heading to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus tells them, this very night you'll all fall away. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep will flee. They'll be scattered. And Peter adamantly denies that any such thing will happen. He says, I'll die first. I will not let this happen. Peter, before the rooster crows, you will stone me three times. Peter is a man of good, honorable intentions, really good, honorable intentions. And he means it with all of his heart. And as they enter into the garden, he takes Peter, James, and John with them. This is the time that Jesus needs them the most. He turns around and he says, my soul is overwhelmed within me to the point of death. In other words, I feel so low tonight. I feel so broken tonight that I could die from the, the, the emotional pain that I'm feeling. And he asks him to pray, pray for me. How often does Jesus ever ask Peter to pray for him? Jesus is saying, I really need this. I need you to do this for me. But Peter's eyes are heavy and he falls asleep. And as you know, it's not long after this that Peter, the man who said he had died before abandoning Jesus, soon he adamantly denies ever knowing him. And he catches the eye of Jesus just after the third denial as Jesus is coming out of the high priest's house. And then the cock crows, and he feels absolutely gutted. Peter's a man of good intentions, but when the pressure comes, it's every man for himself. But let's not be too hard on Peter. What I love about the Word of God is that sometimes it's like a mirror. You can be looking into it and see yourself looking back. Sometimes we can identify with a Bible character and say, yeah, I would be like that. I'm sure we've all been at times like Peter, up, up one day, down the next, sometimes fast like a hare in our spiritual understanding, and other days we're slow like a tortoise. I'm sure there are times when the cock crows in our minds, when we're reminded of our sin and we feel so unworthy and we need Christ's assurance. But let's go back to the garden and let's have a look at Christ in comparison and contrast to Peter. You know, you may think that God can't have a bad day. That would normally be the case, but these are not normal days. Luke being the doctor describes it very graphically. He says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. It's a medical condition. It's a medical condition which can come when someone is under severe, severe stress. And Jesus was under severe stress. He prays to his father, Father, if it's your will, 
If it's your will, take this cup from me. I don't want to go down this path. This is too difficult. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus, when the heat of the furnace is turned up to full blast, he doesn't veer away from his Father's will, not even an inch. This is a bad day for Jesus, uh, uh, his lowest day ever. And yet, even under such pressure and tremendous strain and stress, and there's blood on his clothes from just the stress of it all, even under all of that, he chooses to do the right thing. His Father's will. He's the sort of friend you want. He's the sort of saviour you need. Trustworthy and true, even in the harshest of circumstances. Consistent yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same. I'm going to ask uh, Calvin uh, to come. Calvin Adams from our church. He, uh, he's been very good and, 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 and he's willing to sing a couple of pieces here today and a couple on Sunday morning. And so Adam's going to come and sing uh, Above All. Uh, sitting down there thinking, I'm actually going to introduce this song. Maybe she should have got Amy up to do it. <laughs> but uh, no, this song, the words are so beautiful and uh, they mean a lot to me. And uh, if you know the words, please sing along. But uh, I just hope you're blessed listening to these words. And I hope the song means a lot to you as it does to me. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man. Oh, you were here before the world began. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth. Oh, there's no way to measure what you were worth. And lay behind the stone You live to die Rejected and alone Like a rose Trampled on the ground You took the fall And fought on me Oh, above all Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom 
and all the ways of man. Oh, you were here before the world began. Above all nature, above all things, above all wonders the world has ever seen. Above all wealth and treasures of the earth Oh, there's no way to measure what you're worth Crucified and lay behind the stone You live to die, rejected and alone like a Trampled on the ground You took the fall And fought on me Oh, above all Crucified And laid behind the stone You lived to die Rejected and alone And follow me above all Like a rose trampled on the ground You took the fall And you follow me above all Thank you, Calvin. That was lovely. Um, let's pray. Jesus, today we pause to remember your sacrificial love that shone light into the darkness, that bore life from such emptiness, that revealed hope out of devastation, that spoke truth through incrimination, that released freedom in spite of imprisonment, and brought us forgiveness instead of punishment. Thank you that we can now walk in the light of your life, hope, truth, freedom, and forgiveness this day and every day. Amen. Just want to, to read now uh, Matthew 27. We looked at the, the garden. Going to now look at the governor, Matthew 27, verses 11 to 31. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to, a great, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. That time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? 
For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Peter was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, keeping on the theme, can you trust Jesus? Is he trustworthy? Again, I want to look at the character of Jesus and focus on how beautiful his character is, but this time in contrast to the character of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. One at this point is weak on the outside, but strong on the inside, while the other is strong on the outside, but weak on the inside. And I want to put Jesus alongside Pontius Pilate. I want to suggest to you that it wasn't Jesus who was the only one on trial here, but also Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea from AD 26 to 36. It's a very important job, appointed by none other than Caesar himself. He was sent to keep the peace in the Middle East. Rome depended upon a steady supply of corn from Egypt uh, to, to feed its people back home. And peace in the Middle East was very necessary for this to happen. But it was about AD 33 when Jesus walked into Pilate's court and into his life um, the case seemed rather simple at first, the chief priest bringing Jesus to Pilate, and they point out that he's a criminal who needs to be punished. Quite simple. The Pilate says, well, just deal with him according to your own law. But the chief priests are not looking to chastise him. They're not looking to fine him. They're not looking to banish him from the temple. They're looking something much more serious. They're looking to kill him. Only under Roman law, the Jews are not allowed to kill or put a man to death. Pilate begins to realize this could be very, very complicated for him. And he takes Jesus into his quarters, begins to question him. He says, they say, you're a king. Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? You know, if he's a king, he may be a threat to Rome. Are you the king of the Jews? He sees before him this poor man with a small band of followers who fled, ran for their lives. Of course, he's not a king. He might be a dreamer, thinks Pilate, but, but not a king. And Jesus says to him, my kingdom doesn't come from this world. In other words, it doesn't have its origins in a world of deceit, in a world of hatred and bloodshed and aggression. Pilate soon knows that Jesus is no revolutionary. So what should he do? What is he to do? And he comes out to the chief priest and he says, I find no fault in him at all. He's, he's not guilty. Certainly nothing worthy of death. 
tell you what, I'll severely reprimand him and then I'll let him go. The chief priests are still not satisfied. It's at this point that Pilate's moral character is put on trial. Is Pilate strong enough to stand on the principles and to do what he believes to be the right thing to do in spite of the outcries of these grumpy priests? The temperature increases somewhat as the chief priests bring out a secret weapon. They say, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Well, Caesar's Pilate's hero. He's every Roman's hero. Then having stuck the knife in to Pilate, they start to twist it a bit. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. In other words, how can you be Caesar's friend if you let this man go? Now the fear of man starts to strike in Pilate's heart. Well, if I let Jesus go, what will others think of me? What will they think of me back in Rome? What will Caesar think of me? If he hears, I've let a man go, who these chief priests are claiming to be guilty of treason against Rome. In the history of Rome, there's several cases where a governor of Rome, if he he found to have failed in his duties, he would receive a letter telling him to commit suicide, which would save his troops from killing him. And by the end of the conversation with Pilate, the chief priests are shouting, And they're shouting, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. What begun as a very simple case has turned very nasty. It's like we have two hourglasses and one represents Jesus' life, which is quickly running out. And the other hourglass represents Pilate's career, which could also be quickly running out. And what is Pilate to do? Will he sacrifice his own career by doing what's right, standing for justice? Or will he save his career by sacrificing Jesus, who he knows is an innocent man? Well, you know what happens. He saves his own career by sacrificing Jesus. He knows he's innocent, but to stand up and do the right thing by letting Jesus go, will damage his own career and may even put his own life in danger. Saving himself, he decides, I'm going to save myself here. But he makes one last attempt to save Jesus' life. As a goodwill gesture, each Passover, um, the Roman guards, the Rome, Rome will release a prisoner Uh, as a goodwill uh, gesture for Passover. And uh, I reckon that Pilate, when he does this, I suspect that he's pretty certain that given the choice to release a murderer called Barabbas or Jesus, it shouldn't be a hard decision for people. He trusts humanity. He trusts the Jews. I think he believes that they will just go, give us Jesus that any rational man would say, give us Jesus. But it backfires on him. It backfires and they cry out for Barabbas. You know, if you were to take out the file on Barabbas, it would show past crimes, theft, 
disturbance of the peace, insurrection, murder. Bring out Jesus' past files and it would show heal a, heal a blind man, heal a paralyzed man, heal the leper, gave tremendous hope to thousands who had listened to him. And they picked Barabbas, again Pilate cries, what evil has he done? Like, this is crazy, this is madness, this is not right, this goes against all sense of justice. Shall I crucify your king? And they shout, we have no king but Caesar. Matthew tells us that Pilate walks over to a basin, puts his hands in and starts washing his hands and says, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. But he isn't innocent, is he? It's him who finally pulls the trigger. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. It's strange, isn't it, that the name Pilate means literally one armed with a dart. But the irony is that Pilate, in failing to save Jesus, opens the door for Jesus to save the world. Or should I say, to save the whosoever who trusts in him. And what a contrast Jesus is to Pilate. Jesus pitches his tent on earth here. He surrenders his power. We're told he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We're told humbling himself, obedient to death, even death on a cross. As Isaiah spoke of him, he says, as a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We see him here before Pilate with the opportunity to show his power, to defend himself, but says nothing in his defense. He's going with the Father's will. He becomes obedient to death. This is his Father's will. And in John 4, he says, my meat is to do, this is what I want to do, that my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. And he does it, and he drinks the cup that the Father has given to him, and he drinks every last drop. Pilate's guilty. Christ is innocent. But willingly, Christ was punished as if he were guilty for you and for me. Pilate may be physically strong, but he's weak in spirit. Jesus Christ is at this point weak, unable even to carry his cross. But how strong in spirit he is. You know, he puts others before himself. He has a love for you. It's, it's Hesed love. It's a love of the Old Testament speaks of. It's a love which seeks the other's highest good. Jesus sought and seeks your highest good. As the song puts it, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. When he was on the cross, you were on his mind. 
We're going to stand and uh, we're going to sing from heaven you came. Angela Martin, um, as you know, hasn't been too well lately. And I asked her for a couple of hymns that she would like us to sing tonight. She's probably watching online. And um, she picked this one from heaven you came. And it's great to see Florence out again. It's super to see Florence Blair out. And Florence has picked a hymn for us for Sunday. So you come along and hear that one. But from heaven you came, let's stand and worship God.
I'm going to invite Calvin to come forward again, and he's going to sing uh, quite an emotional song called Feel the Nails. Jesus died for my transgressions And that he paid that price a long, long time ago When he gave his life for me On a hill called Calvary But there's something else I want to know Does he still feel the nails? Oh, every time I fail Can he hear the crowd cry crucify again? Oh, am I causing him pain? Then I know that I gotta change I just can't burn of hurting him It seems that I'm so good at breaking promises And thy treatise precious grace so carelessly But each time that he forgives Tell me what if he relives the agony that he felt upon that tree? Oh, does he still feel the nails? Oh, every time I fail, can he hear the crowd cry crucify?
crucified you, Jesus, with my sin. Oh, Lord, you know I'm tired of playing games. I really want to change. I never want to hurt you again. just want to read Mark chapter 15 verses 21 to 39 we've looked at uh, the garden and uh, the governor I want to look now at, at the grave that Jesus was facing uh, Chris if we could just have that wee powerpoint on there um, right a certain man from Cyrene uh, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him, the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. I referred last time to Hesed love, this love, this sacrificial love, this love that seeks the highest good of other people. That's the type of love that would lead Christ to the cross. And I want to continue to highlight the goodness of Jesus Christ, his character. You know, there's never been or ever will be someone like Jesus. And I want to look at Jesus in contrast to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the, the lawyers, the religious leaders. You know, they'd come around the cross and they, it wasn't good enough that they, were, they had him hanging on a cross. They now wanted to abuse him with their words and humiliate him and accuse him. You know, Pharisees started off with very good intentions. Many boy, boys used to dream a bit like wanting to play for Manchester United, but in a different context. The boys, there, many boys wanted to become Pharisees. They looked up to them because they were responsible for protecting the law of God. 
And it started off with really good intentions, but they ended up substituting God for the law. The law became more important than God in their lives. Jesus on occasions was not very amused. He called them whitewashed tombs. Tombstones were whitewashed to show up in the dark. And if you were coming home from a night out and there were different graves at different sites on different, in different fields, they would be whitewashed so that you wouldn't walk into them and become in contact with anything to do with death. And Jesus called them He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. Clean on the outside. Everything looks great on the outside, but you're inside, you're full of dead man's bones, death and decay. He accuses them of cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside of the cup is filthy. Because Jesus is concerned about what is going on on the inside more than what a person looks like on the outside. He also accuses them of being hypocrites. Now, in a theater context, being called a hypocrite was, was a good compliment. It was a compliment. You know, in plays back then, in the olden days, it was often necessary to play more than one part. You could maybe have two or three parts, and you'd just use a mask in front of you for each person, for each person character. And then at the, at the party afterwards, if you've done well in performing, you may get the compliment, you were a real hypocrite tonight. And that was a compliment. In other words, you acted well tonight. You played a part. You pretended to be someone who you're not. Well, whenever Jesus called them hypocrites, it wasn't a compliment. Jesus was saying you're pretending to be something that you're not. He says to them, you love the best seats in the synagogues. You love people making a fuss over you in the marketplaces. You love people to hear you praying at street corners. And it's all about the show. But that's all it is. It's a show. And indeed, he tells his disciples, I want you to do what the Pharisees tell you. They're good teachers of the law, but don't do what they do. They talk the talk, but they fail to walk the walk. You know, in contrast to that, Jesus is the living, breathing Word of God. We're given the Scriptures. This is the Word of God, and it it is there to lead us to the living Word of God, who is Jesus Christ. He's all that God wanted humanity to be. There's no pretense with him, no mask wearing, and the inside of his cup is as pure as the outside. He lives what he preaches, and he preaches what he lives. I wonder when you look at a Pharisee in Scripture, do you ever see yourself looking back? I know I do. It's easy to be religious, but it's empty. It's easy to fall into the trap of talking the talk, but failing to walk the walk. You know, it's wonderful when we accept Jesus Christ and he becomes our king. But we must continually examine our hearts and ask ourselves, does he reign in my heart now? Does he influence how I live my life today? Does he influence my decisions today? 
Does he influence how I treat people today? Is he the Lord? Is he master, not just saviour? The Queen's coronation, and we'll be thinking about it more and more as we come up to the Jubilee, uh, Platinum Jubilee. Uh, But the Queen's coronation took place on the 2nd of June, 1953. And she's done a wonderful job. But from that day to this, she's not had to make any decisions or create any laws which would in any way affect anyone's lives in the United Kingdom. She is what's known as a constitutional monarch, merely a figurehead, but when it comes to making the laws or major decisions with regards to our lives living in this country, she doesn't have that power. It belongs to the government. And what I want to ask you tonight is... And I ask myself the same question. Is Jesus Christ a constitutional monarch in our lives? A figurehead. Is Jesus Christ to you someone who doesn't reign in your life, doesn't affect your life? Doesn't doesn't affect the decisions that you make and the actions that you take? Or is he Lord? We need a Jesus Christ who doesn't just affect us on a Sunday morning, but is there for us on a Monday morning and a Tuesday morning and a Wednesday morning. And that's where he wants to be. He wants to be walking with us every day, but he wants to reign in your heart as king. He, he has something with this Hesed love. He's looking for your highest good. And the first part is to walk to the cross that you might have it. Another contrast, and just finally, and you've listened really well. So, um, Another contrast which hit me was also that religious leaders, they laid heavy burdens on people. In Luke eleven forty six, Jesus says to these experts in the law who are used to teaching the scriptures and teaching the law, you experts in the law, where do you? Because you load people with, down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. They add laws upon laws for people to obey. Jesus, on the other hand, he's a burden bearer. The donkey that he rode coming into Jerusalem, he chose a donkey. Now, donkeys were regarded as burden bearers, big weights on their back to bear, bear burdens for people, carry all sorts of goods for people. Jesus is a burden bearer. Come on to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And now here with the grave before him, in weakness, he stumbles his way up the path, up the Via Della Rosa, which leads to Calvary. 
and he's more than ever your burden bearer. Isaiah writes, Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And we are like sheep, aren't we? We just walk away. We can walk away. Our hearts can be so glib at times and so hard at times. We just walk away from the Lord. We know what we're doing. But Isaiah goes on to say, he says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, put on him, on his shoulders, the iniquity of us all. He was our burden bearer. What a saviour we have. That even under such pressure and such pain and such torment and agony, he does the right thing every time. The writer to the Hebrews advises us, and what tremendous advice it is. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Stick your eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy, for the joy set before him. What is that joy? You are that joy. I am that joy. The joy, the thing that kept him going in the darkest moments was thinking of you, and me becoming children of God, trusting him, of God's spirit coming to live within us again, of God's spirit beginning to imprint God's image in us again. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. When he was on the cross, You were on his mind. He was your burden bearer. And he took your sin on mine. That he might be that burden bearer for every day that you live on this earth and then one day bring you into his presence with his Father in heaven. Just as we settle our hearts as we, before we come around the table, I asked Karen if she would play a violin solo just to, to settle our hearts. And uh, so just thank you, Karen.
Thank you. If we see those three examples that we're looking at this evening, where Christ's character comes through, surely we can join with the four living creatures in Revelation 4 who say, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, holy being set apart. There is no one who comes close to who he is. And with the 24 elders who fall before him and cast their crowns before him, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You think of him, yet he walks among us. So great and majestic and powerful, and yet he walks among us. In theology, Christ is often referred to as the God-man, fully God and fully man. But on top of that, it's more personal than that. He's the God friend. He's God, but he's our friend. Jesus said, I have called you my friends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to tell you tonight that we love you. And Lord, there's nothing we could ever do that would in any way pay for what you've done for us. Lord, it costs us nothing but our lives when we give our lives to you, but it cost you everything. Lord, we want to thank you for just what you went through, and we think about the beatings that you went through even before you got to the cross. We think of the lashes. We think of the humiliation of the mockery that you went through. And Lord, we want to thank you for that. And Lord, keeping in mind that worship in the Greek means to come toward to kiss, it's intimate. I pray, Lord, that you would come around this table and we thank you for these emblems, but come around this table, come into this, this uh, church, Father, in this church building and touch people's hearts, touch people's lives. Lord, you know what they need. You know what they need. And we pray that you would touch them. May they know that you have forgiven them. May they know, Lord, that you love them. May they know that you have plans for them, that you have a hope and a future for them. Encourage them, Lord. And may they have a, a sweet time in your presence now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, take it, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And let's eat together.
And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. By eating and drinking, we are proclaiming his death until he comes. Let's drink together. We're going to finish our service tonight with, uh, again, it's a, it's a song that's been chosen by Angela Martin. It's one of her favorites, it's very dear to her heart, and it's called Jesus Christ, I Think Upon Your Sacrifice. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here tonight. And Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you went to the cross. And God, it is such pressure on your shoulders with such intense pain and humiliation and anguish and agony. And yet, Lord, under such pressure, you made the right decision to do your Father's will. And that reminds us, Lord, that we can trust in you, that you are our rock. Lord, that whenever pressure is intense for us and wherein the way doesn't seem clear before us, Lord, you are there for us. We can trust in you. 
And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen.